Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello everyone, thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. My name is Sandy Docker and I am taking over today from your usual host, Danny V. And I'm so excited because I get to speak to the one and only Fiona McIntosh. Welcome, Fiona. Oh, it's lovely to be back and lovely to be talking to you, Sandy. Thank you. Now, for our listeners, Fiona is the best-selling author of over 40 books across many genres, including crime, fantasy, children's books and historical fiction. Fiona also teaches writing through her highly regarded masterclass series, is one of the best speakers I've had the pleasure to listen to, and I've been fortunate to meet Fiona a number of times now at her literary luncheons that are usually held in Sydney. And not only is she uh, one of the best storytellers there is, she always has me in stitches, and I come away with a deeper understanding of story and publishing every time I hear her speak. Thank you for joining us today, Fiona, and we're going to be talking about your newest work of historical fiction, The Spy's Wife. Can you give us a brief summary of what The Spy's Wife is about? Yes, I can. And firstly, thank you for those very kind words. Um, there hasn't been a lot to giggle about in the last um, 12 months, so I don't know what I'm going to say when I hit a stage um, because our lives have all been sort of, we pressed hold, didn't we? And, and that it's been on one level. Anyway, let's stay uh, optimistic about everything. It is feeling better in this country, certainly. Um, all right, The Spy's Wife. Very excited about this one because it really wrote itself. We had no real feeling for how this story was going to um, emerge. It was being written through COVID. Um, and I felt that because we were in such a bleak um, headspace collectively, that the last thing I needed to do was go to my favourite playgrounds of the two world wars. Um, and so I deliberately chose to set it in um, the interwar years, right smack in the middle of the 1930s, where only the audience knows that war is coming again. But the cast um, in the story, you know, everybody is of the opinion they wouldn't do it again. And so they all have that mindset. It couldn't possibly happen again. Bearing in mind, we've come through the Great War, we've come through um, Spanish flu, and we've come through the Great Depression. So we're in the middle of the 1930s where everybody's feeling a bit more upbeat about life, you know, and um, looking forward without the knowledge that we have, you know, of what is actually going to happen. And so I also deliberately set it in the middle of summer. Now, I never do that. All my books, because I'm a creature of winter, are usually set in the autumn. I love winter to write about, or at worst, you know, if I'm bullied, I'll go into spring, but never summer. But this time I did. I thought we need summer frocks. We need picnics. We need ice cream. We need people in that very good mood that sunshine does do to you. 
even if you're a humbug like me about the sun, you know, I, I love winter. I do not like summer, but you know, even I will smile on a mild sunny day and that's what it does to you. So I wanted that whole atmosphere in the book because the actual backdrop of the book is really quite dark times. If we reflect on them, the 19, 1936, things were going very dark. Germany had really decided to remilitarize to hell with the Versailles um, Treaty of Versailles. Um, you know, we've been the beggars of Europe. We've paid our dues. We're over this whole thing of we're sorry and we are going to be um, the champion of Europe again. And so with Hitler's encouragement, all the people were back up on top, um, you know, marching, parading, feeling very important. And so that's the rather dark backdrop to the story. All right. So it's a fish out of water, um, which I love. And it also turned into this great big adventure. And curiously, my editor, um, my publisher, who's the same as your publisher, she said, there's a really cheeky quality to this story, Fiona, which I didn't realize when I was writing it. And so uh, it sort of feels it lends itself to one of those great movies of the 40s where, oh, I don't know, or 50s where Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant are, you know, intense situations, but there's this fabulous feeling of sparkle about it. And it's true, this book does have a, a certain sparkle about it. Um, so Evie is this fish out of water. She's a girl who comes from a, you know, sleepy hollow, um, a backwater. She's on a branch railway line. She's the station master's daughter. And suddenly, um, and I won't say why or how it happens, she is thrust into the spotlight and she suddenly, having never stepped foot out of Yorkshire, um, she's suddenly in London, she's in Paris, she's in Berlin, she's in Munich, and she can actually change the course of what Britain is thinking about Hitler. Um, and she's sent into a situation she should never have been sent into. She's not qualified for it. But Evie being Evie, and she's a very impressive girl, um, she would be one of my favourite characters. She just, she has this incredible um, daring, which is driven by fear, but this incredible daring. And she lives off her wits and she's very good on her feet, you know. And so she becomes this quite adventurous heroine for us. And it's a marvellous tale, really. I think it's one of my top three. Are you not meant to love your children any differently than you um you know you're meant to love them all the same but um I would put The Spy's Wife in my favorite three books that I've written. Yeah Evie is certainly a pretty amazing character and I can absolutely see her on the big screen being played by a, an actress with a fair bit of spunk I think yeah she, she does have that quality about her and when you talk about Fish Out of Water I think it's fair to say that the two main characters of the novel Evie and Max are, you know, at the heart, just ordinary people. Even Max is a fairly ordinary person who find themselves thrown into a far from ordinary situation and they're forced to do rather extraordinary things. What is it about that juxtaposition of ordinary people doing extraordinary things that you think makes for such a riveting reading? Well, I think it makes them very easy to relate to as characters because we're all pretty ordinary. You know, our daily grind is fairly ordinary. Um, I know people would think of me, well, you know, you travel a lot and you, you know, you're a writer and I'd love to do all those things. But the, the daily grind of being, of doing what I do, and you know this, Sandy, uh, you know, it's, it's really quite ordinary. And we go to the supermarkets and we walk our dogs and everything's the same we are thinking about our children and where, you know, uh, so it's, we all live fairly similar lives in that regard. And I think Evie and Max, as you rightfully point out, are living, they're not extraordinary. They're just everyday people. Um, and suddenly this outrageously extraordinary situation is thrust upon them and they have to respond without the, the knowledge of how to do that. And they're pushed into a corner and it's up to their personality and their, um, I suppose their spine um, and their ability to respond quickly to a situation. Uh, you start to really appreciate them as 
you know, as people and you see their real personalities come out. And I think it's Evie who takes control of that. Max um, is wonderful, but Max is quite a, a sad character all the way through because he he is he is the one who has the most to lose in this in this whole situation. So he lives on constant fear and he's having to put out fires constantly. And then Evie comes into his life and there's another fire that he's got to sort of not put out, but keep burning, if you know what I mean. She, suddenly he's got someone else to worry about, but um, she's really the star of the show. And I think people relate to them as an ordinary pair of people that you might meet any day of the week. I'm going to delve into Evie in, in a moment, but I just want to let the listeners know we're not trying to be obtuse when we're talking around certain no. things about this novel. We have to do that to avoid spoilers. Um, yes. Such a such a an exciting and riveting plot. So please forgive us if we are talking around some of these issues, listeners. <laughs> uh, now, speaking of Evie, and we've talked about, you know, that she's this amazing spunky character, and she really is the driving force of the novel. She is, as you said, the daughter of a station master in country England, who through means that we won't delve into, finds herself in Germany pre-World War II. And she has to exhibit a fair amount of bravery that goes far beyond her quiet life in Levisham. Do you think that anyone thrust into her situation would have shown such courage? Or was there something in particular about Evie that allowed her to navigate this strange new world she finds herself in? No, I don't think anyone could. I think, um, you know, I think the, the element to Evie is if you look at her life in Levisham, she's one of these people who is not, she's not in frilly frocks. She's not worrying about what her hair looks like or, you know, whether that gentleman is is looking at her and whether she's got, um, you know, he's, she's caught his eye. She's just not aware of, she has no self-awareness about that sort of thing. Her sister does all of that for her. She's got this very um, gorgeous, flirtatious sort of sister who's who just wants to escape station life and, and live the high life. Evie's actually quite satisfied with how her life is going. And she you find that she's taking on a lot of men's work. She's in the signals room. If they knew about it, her father would be fired. But he has to make this station work. And when their usual signal master is suffering from um, post-war depression, they wouldn't have known what to call it, PTSD or any of that then. Um, he just seemed to not be the same man. Um, she covers and, and runs the signals box. Um, she's working on the platform all the time. She's helping her father in the parcels room. She's taking control of the family. She's raising her baby sister. So Evie already has this in incredible metal about her. You know, she's a strong woman, but she doesn't necessarily wear that outwardly, but she's got incredible inner strength. Um, and she's also sharp. She listens to the news every day with her father and they have political discussions. Now that wasn't perhaps every woman of 1930, of the early 1930s, um, but she's very much into the political landscape, what's happening in the world. And so, I mean, and she notices things. She's quite sharp. She's paying attention. She's really plugged into her world. And so she does notice this particular man who comes up regularly. She doesn't want to flirt with him, but unfortunately she feels herself drawn. She finds a like mind, in other words, two people who'd rather not be noticed um, sort of find each other. And a great love story develops, but who knew? She couldn't foresee what was actually going to happen. Um, and frankly, neither could he. So I think um, her qualities of just being a big sister, being the wife to her father, so to speak, being the jack of all trades around the station room from oiling this or, you know, checking that. She's, she's shouldering a lot of work that, it, you know, maybe three or four people would be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and she's not looking for praise for it. So she's got this amazing invisible quality about her. And that's what serves her when she gets into Germany. That ability to just become invisible at times while still being present and noticed, weirdly. Mm. One of the 
signs of really good storytelling is when the reader puts themselves in the position of the characters that they're getting to know. And I found myself trying to put myself into Evie's situation, thinking, could I have done what she did if I was in the same situation? And, of course, I'd like to think that I could, but, you know, hopefully we'll never find out if I could ever <laughs> behave that way. Do you think you would have had the strength and the courage that Evie displayed in the novel? I'm like you. I, I, I hope I would. And I think what really tips the scales for Evie, firstly, is a new love. And if we can all drag ourselves back to that moment when we first fell in love, you feel like you're superhuman anyway, you know, and everything else. It's like you're walking through an alternate reality when you're first in love. Everything else becomes irrelevant. All that matters is this feeling you've got. So I think that is burning within her. But if I think about how I feel about my children, um, I have deliberately got a child in there whose life is being threatened. His life is in jeopardy. And I think that is the glue that forces Evie and Max to do what they do, because there's a child in the midst of this who will be killed if they can't pull off what they're planning to pull off. Um, and that's the horror of that tale, the reality, because that would have really happened. In real life, in 1936 Germany, that boy would not have lived. Um, I doubt. I doubt he would have lived. So um, it's up to Evie to try and do, and she performs the most incredible stunts, really. I mean, the villain is brilliant. I love Giselle. She's an incredible villain. But she doesn't use any brute force. We're not talking about someone who uses brute force. We're talking about a villain who is just cunning and vicious. And Evie is sort of no match for that. So she's got to find other ways to get around it by being tricky, by being slippery, by being invisible, by being um, disarming. I mean, and that's what Evie uses to advantage. I mean, she's very disarming. She plays... Yes. She plays her role that she's given so very, very well. In the meantime, she's got a completely um, different agenda. She does. And one of the things that I am loving in historical fiction at the moment, and it is something that you do very well yourself, is the number of stories featuring women and their role in historical events that have largely been ignored up mm. until now. You could have chosen to focus on Max with this novel and from the hints that you drop at a certain point in the book which again I won't reveal for spoilers there's a lot that happens to Max that we don't see that would make for a riveting adventure type story how important was it to you that this remained Evie's story it had to be Evie's story it was um it's interesting you say that because Max is a very empathetic character and I sort of love him and I you're quite right there's a lot that is going on off stage mm -hmm. um, in Max's life that would have made some a really exciting adventure on its own yeah. but um, I never forget who my audience is my audience are predominantly women um, I'm writing commercial fiction for women and I think all of us are loving watching stories or reading, watching stories and reading stories about women um, who even, I mean, it, as you say, it's hidden. Women were doing these things. There were female spies in World War II. Um, women were taking on the jobs of men right in the First World War, the Second World War. Um, but it's overlooked because we are tended to think about, we tend to think of ourselves as the homemakers and the wives and the mothers and we've we've um, had to be satisfied with that for a very long time but the newer generations like my generation onwards we've said actually no I'm going to fly planes I'm going to be um, you know in the army or I'm going to run my own business I'm not going to a wait for a man to do that for me. So it's really from the 1960s, 70s onwards that we've had this feeling of um, wanting to be recognised on our own level. And so we've been writing stories about people like ourselves. And so 
um, it had to remain Evie's story. Otherwise, the book, if I wanted to show both sides, the book would have been as big as, you know, it would have been huge or it would have needed to be two books like The Lavender Keeper and The French Promise because there I did a similar um, sort of story where there were two important people, but I weighted them, I gave them the same weight. So Luke and Lizette had the same weight in the story, but now I just, it had to be about Evie because she's the one who has to pull off this extraordinary feat and Max has to play that more in the background support role, fearing and trying to keep people away while she does what she does, um, you know, and he's as frightened for her as he is for um, the other people whose lives are at, are at stake. Well, as a, as a female in this modern world and as a writer of women's fiction myself, Thank you for spotlighting women in these tales and, and highlighting these unknown stories. Now, one of the themes that runs through the novel, being about spying, of course, is the topic of lies and trust. Yeah. And Evie is, I have to say, a far better woman than I am because her faith in Max never really falters, not truly. But I kept oscillating between trying to figure out if he really did deserve her loyalty or not, especially at the end when he makes a certain phone call. And again, for spoilers, we won't say what that is, but I know you know which phone call I'm talking about, Fiona. And I actually gasped out loud at that point. Yeah. What is it about trust and betrayal that makes such good fodder for novels? Oh, well, especially if you're the reader and you can watch, be a witness to the betrayal going on, you want to reach into those pages and shake the person who's being uh, jeopardized and say, look what's happening here. Why can't you see all the clues are there? Why aren't you paying attention? But that's what makes it tense, suspenseful reading. And that's the drama of the story. In this story, it's that trust that's being handed over and the treachery that is going on that makes it a compelling sort of read because we've got two heroes here and you're not really sure can you trust what is going on here? Can you really trust? And interestingly enough, Sandy, when I wrote the first draft, I wrote the first draft that um, Evie's uh, trust in Max did falter, mm-hmm. um, that she actually takes a whole different perspective. And it's it was a very tough story to write, and I was wrangling it all the way through to the first draft where they were almost at war with one another, but having to put up this um, sort of front. And although it worked, when, when we looked at it very critically as a sort of an editorial team, we all agreed it would, it would work better for the reader if Evie hands over her trust mm-hmm. and is unaware of some of the other machinations that are going on because it makes the ending so much more tense when that phone call occurs and when you think, no, no, this is not happening. Don't you dare, don't you dare, I was saying in my head. (laughs) I know. And even I didn't know how that, I mean, when I was right and, and we'd agreed and I said, okay, let's turn it around and let's have Evie sort of in the dark. Um, So when I was rewriting it, I thought, how's this going to happen? And suddenly, uh, you know, this phone call was happening. And I thought, oh, no, even I was like, I felt, you know, my knees go a bit weak. And I thought, how can you do this? So, yeah, um, it's interesting that you pinpoint that. So I think for her, um, I needed her to blindly love him um, and let that supersede everything not for a moment imagining anything else might occur, you know. Uh, So I don't want to say any more because I just, we'll just spill it, you know, otherwise. (laughs) It was that moment where it it wasn't just a don't you dare do this to Evie moment. It was a don't you dare do this to me. To me, yes. Absolutely. I felt very horrified for me as a writer. And I thought, can I do this? I mean, the reader's going to hate this moment, hate it. Uh, But... Um, yeah, I had one of those moments in the in the French Promise. I, I know, and I I had so much reader email about it saying, "How could you do that? How could you do that to us?" But uh, that's what keeps pages turning, I think. And so long as I don't 
entirely let you down. Um, I think I'll be forgiven. <laughs> no, no, you didn't let me down uh, without giving it away. You, you definitely didn't let me down. The pacing of The Spy's Wife is absolutely cracking. Yes, I found it. myself wanting to skip chapters just so I could get to the end to find out the if and the who and the how. Um, but, of course, I didn't skip any <laughs> chapters. But my heart was just racing all the way through. As a master storyteller, how do you balance that quick pacing, you know, quick plot with the storytelling side of things, revealing us character and themes? Um, yeah, it's a very good question, Sandy. And I know I'll frustrate people by saying I don't, I don't consciously do it. I, I don't. I'm not sitting there thinking Am I getting the balance right here? Am I, you know, am I going too fast or is this a slow bit? I'm not thinking like that. I am just sitting down each day with no idea about what is going to come next in this story. I never have a plan. I've never got a plot. My story arc is so thin, it's almost not there. It's like a single strand of a hair, you know, um, my editorial team trusts me, which I'm very lucky because they have the loosest of, you know, they don't even really know what they're getting. And they just say, look, just go and write it. We'll worry about it after the first draft. And so I really wait until that first draft is written. And, you know, my team is reading it. And they are the ones who might say, it's so fast. It's going too fast. We need to breathe. Where Can you give us a, a lovely, I don't know, outdoor scene or something? Just give us a chance to go... <gasps> you know, take a breath sort of thing. And Ali's done that to me. It happened in The Pearl Thief where she said, Fiona, that it's happening so fast. We do, we need to breathe. Forget your characters need to breathe. We need to breathe. But in The Spy's Wife, it just, I think the balance just came naturally and it is a fast-moving story. But that was part of, I, I think it was the adrenaline of Evie. I mean, um it is, she is living off adrenaline and she's having to, she doesn't know what the next hour is going to bring. She doesn't even know what the next minute is going to bring, particularly when she's in Stuttgart. And the whole focus of the story is now on, can you do this, Evie? Have you, have you got the, the courage to do, it's here, it's now, this is the moment. So can you do it? And even I was writing it thinking, how is she going to do this, you know? So it is a fast-moving story and it is sort of relentless in its, um, there's something happening in each chapter. Um, I, I love that I've done that because that's almost one of the things I lecture about, that you have to have drama that keeps escalating. Um, you can't let your reader ever go into a trough. I mean, there is something to be said for, just give them a scene to breathe in, and a moment where they can say, okay, I can put that book down and I'll pick it up tomorrow. Because there is a feeling that a lot of people are reading this book in one sitting, which is appalling for me. <laughs> they're, they're reading it in one day because their thing is, well, I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know where to actually um, take a break to go to the lavatory or, you know, go and pick up my children from school. I don't know where to stop. It was just going. So, yeah, I don't plan I, I can't tell you how that has happened, but I think maybe after years of doing this um, and writing crime and writing fantasy where there are big plots that have to gallop, you know, it's just coming more naturally to me now. I've been doing it a long enough time that I don't have to sit and analyse, have I got this bit right? But a newer writer might have to do that. And I think that's a good thing to do, to, to look at your work very critically and say, you know, are the beats there in the right order? And, you know, am I taking the reader on this journey? And is it feeling like we're heading upwards all the time sort of thing? Yeah. It's a bit of a dichotomy, isn't it, when readers contact us to let us know that they finished the book in one day? Because that is a huge compliment that they were so invested in the story that they couldn't wait to get to the end. But it's also really heartbreaking because it's taken us two years to write it and then they've knocked it off yes. so quickly and are asking, when is the next one? Yes, yes. And so I, I've learned this with my readers and I'm all, always well ahead of them because I've, I've delivered the next book for um, 2022. Mm -hmm. 
And we've already had our editorial meeting about, you know, is this working? Is that... So I'm now sort of halfway through draft two. And that helps me deal with the people who say, um, yeah, no, look, I finished it in four hours. I've got people who finished it in a few hours. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm really glad then that I've got another story already written, already in the vault, ready for you. Um, and that, you know, it is a compliment and I don't let it bother me. I think I would feel more unnerved if I hadn't started the next book or I hadn't, you know, that would be a little bit more unnerving that you think, oh my gosh, am I going to get this ready in time? But because I've already got that one ready and I can start thinking about the, the book ahead of that one, which is the best position to be in, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Now, when I first saw that you had this release, coming out I assumed from the title and the cover that it was going to be a story set in World War II and as you mentioned at the top of our chat today um, it takes place before the events of World War II and other than you avoiding those two war periods that you said you know you wanted to avoid those was there anything about that particular part of history that drew you to it? Yes. I mean, 1936, incredibly, was um, an enormously busy time in Europe, but particularly in the two countries where most of the action takes place, which is in um, England and in uh, Germany. So for the summer of 1936, we had the Summer Olympics Mm. in Berlin. We had something called Night of the Amazons, in the same period, that same summer period, Night of the Amazons. This is, most people don't know about it. I'd never heard of it. But this is when Germany, um, particularly in Munich, celebrates their sort of prowess, but they use the Greek gods um, to show it. And they put on this enormous sort of um, festival celebrating beautiful bodies, So it's this whole Aryan idea of themselves, you know, beautiful athletes, beautiful bodies, beautiful people, and they do classical sets, you know, um, chariots and um, glorious horses and naked men and naked women showing off their bodies. It was the most outrageous spectacle, but people flocked to watch this and it would go on in the summer in Munich. So we had the Summer Berlin Olympics, the Night of the Amazons, and then we had the Nuremberg Rally, which was a really important one in 1936 because he was he had released in 1936 the, the new flag that the German army would make war under. And it was not just the swastika we know, but the, the new Reich war flag. Um, so there was a lot going on in 1936, which was beginning to, beginning to rattle their sabres and say, we're, you know, the, our military strength is back. And the people... In, in Whitehall were beginning to say, look, we can't imagine this is going to turn into anything more, but maybe we have to take some steps. So they went on to a quiet war footing from about 1936 in Britain. Things were happening at the British Museum. Stuff was being moved away and, you know, um, the politicians were beginning to discuss what would it look like for us to go to war again? You know, there was rumblings, quiet rumblings. And so 1936 was a perfect time for me to topple my characters into because there was a lot going on. And I particularly chose Munich rather than Berlin. A, Berlin's a bit of a stereotype for um, stories. Um, And I discovered that Munich was Hitler's favorite playground. It's where he had his home. It's where he socialized, it's where he relaxed, it's where he met friends, it's where he climbed out of uniform and wore civvies. And he had a favorite um, tea rooms. And Ali, my editor, dared me. She said, go on, I dare you. And I said, I do want my character to come into contact with Hitler, Mm -hmm. but I don't want it to be in the usual stereotypical way of this this little man, you know, yelling, shouting these oratories, you know, or, or 
just being part of the military or so I said I wanted to be in a more in a completely different situation that we've never seen him in and she said I dare you and I said I don't know if I can pull this off so I did so much reading about Hitler just to understand the man Mm -hmm. and then I wrote a very small scene where my character meets him and it's really um it's like a lovely little electric shock when you get to that when you realize who that is Mm-hmm. that she is coming into contact with and it's fleeting it happens and it's done um, and you think did that just happen you know in the story was that really so I loved being able to do that it was a very um, critical time and I loved 1936 for that plus I liked the fashion of that time and I liked the music of that time so it all just rolled together for me that that was the year to choose mm-hmm. and they were well away from the great war and well away from Uh, the Great Depression. So I felt, and the crash, you know, the stock market crash and all of that. So 1936 was also a time of people feeling um, uh, pretty positive about how life was going. Um, So it was the right time to make it all go very dark in the story. And that particular scene in the tea house that you're talking about, for me that it humanises somewhat this monster that we've been taught about in schools and I think that's one of the amazing things about fiction is that it gets us to feel things from a human perspective as opposed to a textbook Mm. and it's really important I think to see these monsters and I'm using air quotes here for you know which people won't see on the podcast um, that you know that we see these monsters as people so that we can recognize that you know in people that we may meet or know or the leaders of today and we don't make those same mistakes again. I think when we when we dehumanise these people from history, we think, well, it's never going to happen again. Mm. It's happening now. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's the, the, the beauty of fiction, you know, because we connect to it in such a personal way. And that scene, as you said, if, if he was, you know, standing on a street burning books, then that's the monster again. But also because we've seen so much of it in so many movies and so many in so many situations, it almost turns him into a caricature of himself. So he becomes, forget the monster side of it, he becomes unreal. Unreal, yeah. Um, And I wanted to to make sure we understood this was Mm. a moving, living, breathing man who wreaked this most incredible havoc on the world uh, with his madness and his... Uh, drive and with his outrageous ideology that people bought into. I mean, my big question with the the whole reason I went to Germany in the first place, it has always troubled me. How did this great liberal nation, I mean, in the early sort of late 20s, Germany uh, and particularly Berlin, it was the most liberal of cities. It's where all the misfits of the world found themselves you know, and theatre and arts and the culture and design and everything to do with um, creativity was alive and thriving in Berlin. And then suddenly Hitler becomes chancellor in 1933 um, and the Reichstag is burning and um, it all changes. Overnight it changes and it becomes this very conservative um, place with this most horrible ideology of how they see themselves and unfortunately I mean I saw a lot of Trump going on there well you know when I was researching I said I remember saying to my husband gosh it's like watching Trump you know this is how he sort of did it and you can see how people were being sucked in I began to understand how everyday Germans right normal intelligent people were being caught up in this whole idea make Germany great again, yeah. you know, make America great again. It was it was like that. And they wanted it. Of course, they're patriotic. You want your country to do well. It could happen to us. But hopefully we'd, I don't know, you just hope we all can see through these things. And I agree that I didn't want him to be a caricature in this book. I wanted him to just be an ordinary little man. And that's all he was, a very ordinary little man who through circumstances, 
found that he was very good at something and he was able to bring all his nasty little thoughts and, and you know, bigot, bigoted ideas onto a much bigger stage and seduce people with them. Mm. And so easily as well. That's the frightening mm. part about it, isn't it? Mm. I'm a firm believer that history in schools should actually be taught through fiction as opposed to textbooks because I find it a much richer and broader take on history and a much more personal take. So I don't know how I'm going to manage to pull this off, you know, in the Australian education system, but I, I really think history should be taught through fiction books. Well, I think they could certainly set, I mean, there's always, there's some great historical terms. I mean, I've read some marvellous um, historical stuff uh, and it's not dry. It's very wet and beautiful and wonderful to read. And a good historian can write it almost like a story if they're breaking down, you know, at the fall of Stalingrad or whatever it is. However, I think they should set texts of fiction around the time so people can get that more a, a real snapshot of the times because a good hit writer of historical fiction is going to get the fashion right the food right the entertainment right the cars on the road the language everything so you're going to get that sort of social and cultural feel of the time and you'll get a better understanding of how these things could have happened because when we look back at a hundred years ago it's quite hard to to wonder how did that we're so sensible now we're so much more enlightened how could that happen you need to walk in their shoes at the time you know to understand how things have occurred you are known for your meticulous research when writing novels and when i've been to your author talks you always have interesting tales about immersing yourself in the locales of your novels, which are always set in interesting international settings. How did the pandemic change how you had to research The Spy's Wife? Yes, it was uh, a bit of a shock. I was very fortunate that um, I had already done the Yorkshire. I'd found Leversham. I'd found, I'd walked the Yorkshire moors. I'd been to Scarborough. Um, and I'd been on that train line down to London and walked around where I needed to be for the for the whole of the British scenes. I had already done that in 2019. And then come 2020, early 2020, I went back to do the German part of it. And it was March 2020. I was in um, Berlin and Munich and Stuttgart and yeah. Nuremberg and I was researching and there was this thing we were talking about the flu coming out of China and we were saying do you, do, should we be worried about this do you think you know and in the space of that three weeks that we were knocking around there it went from should we be worried about this to let's get home you know because Milan was shutting down and um, people that Airports, it felt like they'd machine gun us if we stepped out of line or we weren't proving, um, you know, were we sniffling? Did we have a fever and all this? It was just, you could feel it changing. And I just said, I think we'll go home. And so jumped on a plane, got home, and I feel like they just closed the doors on us. We must have been one of the last flights home. And so I had to hope that everything I had in front of me and in my mind was going to be enough um, to write this story because I knew there was no way I was getting back. Um, you know, I wasn't going to get back to Germany. Now, each one of my books, um, you know, starts two years out and I will probably go to my destinations two or three times. Mm -hmm. for, so that's two or three trips, certainly two trips to the destinations, the locations, and the Champagne War, for example, took four trips to get it right. But I didn't have that luxury. I had one trip. So I put out an SOS because I tend to write in layers. So I write my stories and then I, I want to add in a lot of texture and I enrich the story from um, the next trip that I do. And I, did, I wasn't going to have the luxury of that. And so I put out an SOS and this absolutely wonderful team I don't know how they found me. They're based in Munich and they're a team of historians and they and they sell their services. But they said, We're, we don't want to we don't want you to pay, but we hear what you're trying to do. 
ask us anything, we're here on the ground and we will look it up or find it out or take a photograph or go there. And so I had this fabulous relationship with the managing director there. And he there wasn't anything I asked down to what did the cutlery look like in the such and such that he couldn't answer. He's a historian, so he could he could access archives or he could go and find things. And he was brilliant. He just he just helped me when there were these moments where I thought, oh, I need to get the atmosphere just right here. What, what did this feel like? And he'd set up the scene for me. I didn't know what a jail in 1936 Munich in a particular precinct looked like. And he said, I'll go and find a photograph. And he did. You know, that's how good it was. Yeah, it was brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, that's excellent. You mentioned then that um, you felt the tide changing. Mm. There was that point where you went, we've got to get out. Yes, definitely. Did that help you in terms of recreating that it's a very similar sense to what was happening in 1936 where they were like something's not quite right here things Mm. are about to change (laughs) you know to me I I was mirroring that just then when listening to you did that help you build that sense that feeling within the novel to draw on that that you went through yourself well that's interesting you say that I wasn't conscious of it but I know that we were hurtling to um where did we fly out of Frankfurt? I think we were hurtling to get out of there. Um, and there was a sense of, will we make it? Are we going to be able to get on this flight? And I know when they close the doors on the aeroplane, you get that sense of oh, that Evie gets when yeah, she on gets train. on her train. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you sort of think, okay, okay, we're going to make it. We're going to actually get out of here. But then you think, when you drop into Dubai and you've got to get, you don't want to get off the plane, but you have to get off because you're changing planes. You think, are we going to get stuck here? Because the world was melting down at that point. It was really quite a meltdown. Um, So I don't know if I channeled that Sandy, because I'm really not aware when I'm writing of where my head is, but um, no doubt the experience could have fueled it. I think Back of Brain does lots of things. And I think, you know, you draw on experiences in life. And I've never had that experience before. And yet Spy's Wife certainly makes you feel like it's a bit of a breathless, frightening dash for the border kind of thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it was just, yeah, when I was listening to you, I thought I was picturing that train scene and I was picturing when she was asked for her passport and, you know, are they going to get out or not? Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Now, I find when I'm researching, and I don't do anywhere near as much research as you need to do for your novels, that there's always something that props up, crops up that surprises me. Now, this is, I think, your 13th historical Yes. Novel. Probably is. Do you still get surprised when you're researching or have you yes. done so much of it now that nothing surprises you? No, no, I'm always I'm always surprised. And actually that's part of the fun. You're sort of waiting to be delighted or surprised by something. So for me it was um, discovering about Munich that Hitler had this apartment there and he used to relax there and he used to really not have bodyguards or anything. It was just, you know, he'd be in a suit. No one, he could pass by unnoticed if he wanted to. Um, So that was a lovely surprise for me. Uh, Other things, I don't know. We went to so many museums. I went to a spy museum and, you know, I was delighted by all the lovely gadgets and fabulous history of spying that I was able to um, access whilst I was there and realising what they were doing in ancient Greece, the clever, clever, um, you know, little objects they'd use. And they didn't have technology, but they would write a message out and then wrap it round a walking stick um, in, in a particular way. And only when you unwrapped it, having been curled, could you read the full message? I mean, it was really really clever stuff um I got the uh, the scarf that's in this story I got the idea from uh I thought oh I could do that you know because they used to have maps on scarves you know they used to so when you tied it up it looked like just a lovely design but when you unwrapped it there was a map of the region that you're in and I thought oh I can use that in a different way but I can use that you know so lovely 
punctuations of surprise whilst I'm researching. It never gets old. Never. Yeah. I'd be sad if I wasn't, if I didn't have that sort of childlike um, awe as I research any new particular subject that I get that rush of joy from learning something because that's part of my pleasure at what I do is that I feel enriched for having learned something new. And then you enrich us with your wonderful stories. Now, there are quite a few writers who listen to the Words and Nerds podcast. So I've got just a couple of writing type questions for you before I let you go, Fiona. One of the luncheons that I attended uh, with you for your book, I think it was the Pearl Thief luncheon that I went to. You talked about your editor, Ali, who we've already spoken about today, suggesting a supposedly minor change that then meant you had to rewrite the entire last <laughs> of the book. And I remember sitting there at lunch going, oh, my God, yes. Um, as a writer with your experience, how do you deal with that type of editing feedback? And was there anything similar in the process for The Spy's Wife or was it a much smoother edit? Uh, well, The Spy's Wife was a much smoother edit. Um, the Pearl Thief, it was that very um, topic I mentioned that Ali felt there was so much uh, action and adrenaline and fear in The Pearl Thief that she said, you're not giving us a chance to just catch our breath here. We, I need something. Can you just give me a scene where the reader is not fearful of anything um, and we can just enjoy where she is. Now, Ali thought that was very good advice, and that just meant, and it was, you know, and it just meant, oh, Fiona will just sit down and, and you know, she'll, she'll take us on a picnic or she'll, um, you know, she'll take them on a lovely day out in the car or something. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to have to do? And I said to my husband, I've got to go back to Yorkshire. I've got to go and find this amazing landscape. And so I did, I was actually out five days. So it was one day in flying, one day flying home, three days on the ground in um, Yorkshire and finding that one scene. And the thing is, the minute I did that scene, it changed the whole back end, which I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. And I had to rewrite the story. Now, Ali, that was not her intention. She was <laughs> like, no, I didn't. I didn't. And I said, yeah, well, it's, it's your fault, you know, um, <laughs> you did this. So she didn't intentionally in, intend for that to happen. And I didn't intend to have to rewrite the whole back end of the story. But that scene became so important. And after I'd written it, you can't unwrite it. Mm. You can't say, well, we'll just not do it then. We couldn't because it was so good, that scene. Um, and it did change everything. And so, yeah, I mean, these things happen. And I'm very grateful to her for putting that in there because it made the book so much better. Um, but it did create a lot of extra work. How do I react to it? I, I'm pretty cheerful about these things. I, I'm not frightened of being edited. I'm not frightened of change. And I'm never precious about my work, ever. So I'm not like a new writer who's like, you know, oh, don't touch my baby. I'm not like that. You know, and the other thing I do deliberately is because um, we're now editing the new book, for example, The Orphans for next year, I'm already working on the next book deliberately so that I am divorced from the orphans. I've already given that cast up. I've given the story up. I'm no longer attached to it with that same emotional, um, you know, I, I, I'm still not, I'm not holding it close to my heart anymore. I've moved on and I'm excited about a new cast. So that helps me to be able to be more objective and, if there's constructive work going on, it doesn't hurt me at all. I don't feel bothered by it. Um, the Champagne War was a very similar one. I don't know how your time's going, but after they'd read it, um, they couldn't quite put their finger on what was, this book is lovely, we love it. And she kept saying, Fiona, I could publish it tomorrow like it is. There's something not quite right about it. Anyway, we kept, none of us, I kept rewriting, kept doing things and she said, oh, look, it's gorgeous what you've done. And then she handed it over to um, her, one of her deputy editors and said, 
can you have a read? And Amanda doesn't normally work on my work other than to do some postage or what, you know, just say, Fiona, could you have a look at, we're sending you some proofs. Can you have a look at that or whatever? And Amanda read it. She said, oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. But she said, you know, it's interesting because all Fiona's books have a villain and there's no villain in this one. And it was like a chorus of angels, you know, when when I was told that, you know, the, the clouds parted and angels blew glorious trumpets. And I said, oh, that's what it is. I've got it. And so I, I wrote another draft and I weaved in this villain. And of course, the book changed it just changed completely by walking this villain into the pages and made it so much better for that effort. So sometimes there are things like that, but not for the spy's wife. Um, there was nothing. In fact, I had too much story. I was, you know, we didn't get to a Nuremberg rally because there was just too much story. Um, but sometimes it's easier than other times. Um, but I don't mind either way. You know, I'm not bothered by um, big changes uh, because I know we're in it together anyway. We're trying to make this the very best story it can be. So I'm never frightened of that. I think that's really important for writers who are at the beginning of their careers or who are trying to still get their first book published to understand that, that at the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing. We all want yeah. that book to be the best it can possibly be. And yeah. to, yeah, as you said, divorce yourself emotionally from that story when those editorial feedbacks come in so that you can give yourself the space then for the book to be the best that it can. Yes, because it's not a personal criticism of you. It's it's a constructive critique of what do you think of this? Do you think that could improve it? And, of course, if you are open to suggestion, then you'll be able to see the, um, yes, I could do that. Whereas if you're closed down and you think, no, this is how I, this is how I always saw it, um, you're going to struggle as a writer if, if you do take that very closed and very tight attitude, particularly in commercial fiction, because commercial fiction does walk to a different sort of march to a different tune. And, um, you know, you need your, your partners in this, um, are your, your, your editor and your editors. Um, they're your partners and they all, as you say, they want you to fly with this story. It's got to be the best it can be. Um, and all they're doing is making suggestions. Um, it's still your story and you've got the right of refusal, but it's a bit crazy not to listen to an editor who's trying to improve it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One last writing question before I let you go, Fiona. Given the number of genres that you have written across and the number of books that you have out there in the world, what's the one piece of advice that you can give to our listeners who are writers that are trying to you know, break into the industry, so to speak? Look, it's always the same thing. You've got to write to be a writer. And I meet a lot of uh, people who talk about writing. You know, they're completely carried away with the idea of being a writer. So they join writing groups and they do writing courses and they talk about writing. And yes, I'm working on my manuscript and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And five or six years later, they're no further than talking about writing their manuscript. Um, And I feel that the people who sit down and finish a work, finish what they start and do it within a clear deadline. They set themselves a deadline and they do it. Now that, and they submit it, they go through the pain of submitting it and they go through the agony of being rejected. Every single manuscript they write is going to make them better. But if you never actually finish a manuscript, you're never gonna get better. You're just never gonna get better. There's an old adage, I tell it in my masterclass where, a a painter, a teacher of painting, split her class in two. And she said to one group on here, I want you to produce a single painting for me, the very best that you can do. And I'm gonna give you three months to do it. Just give me a painting. Mm -hmm. Off they went. She said to this group over here, I want you to give me as many paintings as you possibly can. I want to look at your body of work, Mm -hmm. just paint. Don't stop, just paint. And so at the end of that period, she looked at the group that had delivered one glorious painting and it was to the best of their ability, all great, right? To to a point, good enough. When she looked at this gang, she could see 
the journey they'd been on and how much better they got with each painting because they were learning. Some of them produced 20 and by the 20th, that 20th painting was astonishingly good in comparison to this group, but they'd learned how to do things. They'd learned how to draw, how to paint, how to use that medium. And it's the same with writing. If you write manuscripts, you're going to get better at your craft. But if you just keep agonizing over one and thinking, I am a writer, I'm trying to get this, and you just cannot let it go, well, you're only going to be as good as you are then in that moment. Whereas I feel over the course of 40 books, I've just got better and better. And every book is better than the last for me because I've learned something. Now I've learned new stuff on The Spy's Wife. I can't pinpoint what that is for you, but back of brain knows what it is. And when I'm writing, the, when I've written The Orphans, there's something in there that's going to technically be better. And when I get onto the next one, it's, you know, so write, stop talking about it, write. Stop complaining about not getting published. Stop talking about agents and film deals and, you know, it's good to daydream. It's good to have a dream. I, I think that's important. But stop talking about it as though it's imminent. Finish this manuscript and then move on to the next one. You know, when somebody submits, don't sit there waiting the three months to hear. You should be finishing the next manuscript in that time. That's how I roll. I finish a manuscript. I deliver it. I start the next one the next day. I'm not thinking, oh, gosh, I should, you know, have a fag and drink gin and go off on a holiday. I don't, I'm just not like that. I just... <laughs> It's my work. Next day, new manuscript, you know. Oh, dear. Now, one last question before I let you go. Uh, you've mentioned that you've already handed in your manuscript for next year's book. Is there well, I'm on draft two. I'm on draft two. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah. Yes, of course I can. It's called The Orphans. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been more challenged by a novel than this one, and it's because... I haven't been allowed to travel overseas yeah. and go to my glorious, um, you know, far-flung landscapes. And at the time when I had to make the decision about what to write next, it was, you know, um, we were in the middle of uh, the whole country was in lockdown. Mm. And I could, we didn't know. We didn't have the benefit of, like, looking at it now where we can travel across borders just. Um, I felt... I couldn't even plot a story or think about a story in Tasmania or New South Wales or Victoria. I not only was being confined to Australia, I realised I was being confined to South Australia. And that was like, you know, it felt overwhelmingly um, frightening because not only had I never written an Australian story before, mm. I just didn't feel like writing one in my own backyard. I mean, none of us ever appreciate our backyard we just don't um and I was like oh gosh what am I going to write about and so um I had to find it I, first I had to find the story and what I did was push together two ideas and none of us knew how I was going to make that work and one is my lead my heroine is a mortician in Adelaide in the 1930s and my the the other character, the male lead in this story, is a wool classer from, you know, a, a, a sheep station that is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Adelaide. And so how on earth I wanted to write these two characters, so I was set in my thought once I decided who they were, can I, how am I going to bring them together? I had no idea how I was going to make that work. And somehow I have, I've made it work. Um, so I'm quite inwardly, privately proud of myself for climbing a mountain that felt insurmountable. Um, whether the story is going to hit the right mark, mm -hmm. it's up to all of you out there. But my editor was shocked with joy because I'd sort of, laid the framework you know that Ali you're not going to like this Ali I don't know what's going on Ali I you know please forgive me I've really stuffed it up you know I just I hate this book I'm rubbish I've realized I'm just an imposter all those <laughs> other books were just 
a fluke and here I am naked and bare and rubbish and you can see just how bad I am and she read it she read it in a day and she just said what are you talking about she said I adore this book she said I just adore it and she said and it's so Australian everything about it is just speaks to my heart and that was my real worry that I wouldn't capture the essence of what it is to be Australian, I suppose. And I do feel a bit like an imposter because I was born on the other side of the world and I grew up on the other side of the world and my, you know, what's in my DNA is from the other side of the world. And suddenly here I am trying to pretend that I've got Australia in my soul. Um, so I was very worried about that, but she said, stop worrying. She said, you've really, you've caught it. You've caught it just right. Um, so it's in a very interesting story. It's very domestic, it's very small. It's set, as I say, I do take us into the beautiful outback of South Australia, off to the Flinders Ranges. Mm -hmm. And then we come back down into not Adelaide so much, but um, Port Adelaide, um, which is where all the exports, the ships were coming in and out of Port Adelaide. So that's where the real action was. And so these two very diverse places are being mashed together by me um, to create this story. So it's it's terrifying, really. Um, and I just hope everyone will react like Ali did to it. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I've been at talks of yours where the audience members have asked, you know, why don't you set your books in Australia? And your response has been because you don't think that you can write Australian stories and that there are others who do it very well. Who do it? Yeah, that's it. And that's the thing. They're going to compare me to, you know, I don't know, Colleen McCulloch or something. I just felt overwhelmed by the idea that Australians write about Australia so well, you know. Um, I didn't grow up with the burning sun on my back or red dust between my toes or even, you know, running along a sandy beach. I had none of that in my life. The smell of eucalypt was not in the air. You know, I, I come from a completely different background. I was very worried I couldn't capture it. But, you know, I'm a writer and I thought you, you've got you've got to stop putting yourself down. You've got to understand that you write about Germany and you didn't grow up in Germany. So get on with it. Get on with it. And so, yeah. And indeed, the next story I have to write, um, next two books I have to write are set in Australia because... I'm already committed to them and we've been in this pandemic. So we had to make decisions and contracts have to be written. And so the next crime book will be Australia based and the book coming after the orphans will be um, another big Australian book. That well, is scared. Daylights out. <laughs> you may be scared, but I and I'm sure many of your readers will also be very excited to see that book come out next year. Thank you so much for joining us on Words and Nerds today, Fiona. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you about The Spy's Wife. It is out now on the shelves and on the bricks and mortar stores, the online stores, everywhere where you would normally get your copy. And I would advise everybody to go out and get it as soon as they can. Try not to finish it in one day just to, to uh, it. <laughs> um, but it's a cracking story and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you again so much for joining us today. And hopefully we'll get to see each other in person sometime in the next 12 months maybe. Sandy, thank you very much. It was a lovely interview and good luck with your own writing. It's, thank you, so uh, much. you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful craft and it's a pleasure to be able to have this as a daily job. And thank you to all your listeners and to the readers out there. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.